2: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkoff, your host, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, somewhere... Not too far, I might add, from where um, uh, Paul Manafort and uh, uh, Maria Butina and others are being kept um, behind bars. We are not behind bars. However, it's really, really hot where we are. Um, we are joined across America on the farthest coast of the United States by Nada Bakos of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a 20-year veteran of the intelligence community. Welcome Nada for the first time to the podcast. Uh, and in not too far from there in Wyoming, uh, wandering around adding to her sagebrush collection, which is her pride and joy, Rosa Brooks, Um, uh, I, I understand the weather's blowing up there a bit on the prairie. It it is.
1: It's, it's a little windy here, David. I, I, I'm not collecting sagebrush, but I saw dinosaur tracks and I learned that dinosaurs had feet like giant chickens.
2: Wow. That's really interesting. And where did you learn that Rosa? I learned
1: that at a place called red gulch dinosaur track site where I followed in their little chicken like footsteps.
2: Wow hey, you know, Nada. this is your first time on, but one of the things we know about Rosa when she's out in a place like Wyoming is it means she's coming up with things to do to avoid writing her book. and (laughs) and, Don't tell anyone. And that includes apparently following in the footsteps of giant chickens. Um, And in also not writing a book at the moment, as we have learned, Ed Luce, who's in Chicago, Illinois, uh, communing with the people of America's heartland um, and is, 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 is all where, well. Yes. Where,
3: where the wind, where the wind is also whipping up appropriately for the windy city. Uh, although, although I'm told that's, that's um, after politicians being long winded, but still it's very windy here. And the, the rain is <laughs> whip, whipping against the window of the office I'm sitting in. Um,
2: well, So we've really got a range of perspectives here. And obviously I'm very happy to have Neda join us for the first time uh, on the podcast um, because there's so many stories right now swirling around about the nature of the relationship between the president of the United States and the national security community, and particularly the intelligence community. This has always been a fraught relationship. Um, And uh, for those of us who know Washington, know how it works, It was always not likely to end up well for the president, who was attacking people who are patriots and dedicated servants of the United States. Uh, But it's gotten particularly heated in the past week. And among the things that have taken place in the wake of the president's pulling the security clearance from former CIA director John Brennan is that a number of people have written to the president expressing their discomfort with this, ranging from former uh, Admiral McRaven's piece in the Washington Post to uh, letters from former heads of the CIA and uh, former uh, directors of national intelligence uh, two letters from a, a group of distinguished intelligence community professionals. And Neda, I believe you were one of the signers of one of those letters. And I thought perhaps we could start with the rationale behind that and what you hope it will achieve.
0: Yes, I did sign one of the letters on um You know, the main reason I signed it wasn't necessarily because I was saying I support everything that Brennan has said or Brennan's actions. Really, what I'm supporting is his ability to be vocal. As a former CIA director, I think he can offer his perspective as long as he's not breaking any national security clearance objectives and laws um, or rules, I should say. I I mainly signed the letter because I thought this— kind of retaliation really doesn't um I'm trying to think of what the right word is here we I don't seldom think here
2: able, here here on on deep state radio we seldom use the right word so you shouldn't <laughs> i'm
0: trying to use an appropriate word i don't uh, think you should be able to retaliate uh as the president with people who disagree with you and revoke things that are just happen to be under your executive powers to try to silence them. I think that's not only inappropriate, it's dangerous. It politicizes the the clearance process itself. And I guess the question I have is where does that end?
2: Well, let, let me ask you a follow-up question on that before I bring in our friends here. And, and that is, as somebody who spent a couple of decades inside the intelligence community and knowing Many people who remain inside the intelligence community, as I imagine you do, um, what's the the likely consequence of this? Not just the letter, not just the debate, but the 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 nature of how chilling this effect may be on the relations between the intelligence community and the White House. Clearly, people go on trying to do their job, but the 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 question becomes: um, How much harder is that going to be? And do you think there 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 can actually be a day-to-day cost in the way the government functions as a result of the president's actions.
0: I do think there is going to be a cost. And I was trying to imagine if I was Gina Haskell, who is currently the director of the CIA, interfacing with the president at this point when this whole dialogue is playing out in the public sphere, You know, what is she being asked at this point? Is she being asked about her loyalty? Is she being asked if she supports Brennan or if she she supports Trump? I I mean, I can't even imagine how awkward that conversation is at this point. Um, I also think it's signaling to people who are current civil servants inside the intelligence community that you have to be very careful and tread water. Um, You do not want to enter into any conversations that can be construed as anything that's anti-Trump at this point. I don't know how else you could read this. I would be afraid of being engaged in any kind of political discussion, you know, with just friends and family. You certainly couldn't be responding to anything on Facebook. (laughs) Uh, I think it has an absolute chilling effect. Well,
2: you know, uh, Rose, on the last episode that we did, Ed made a point that we are not sort of at the very tip of the wedge between the president and our normal standards um, and sort of spreading authoritarianism, and what NATO is getting at here is a sort of a broader sense that this president demands loyalty, demands behavior um, that uh, other presidents would not have even thought to ask for. Um, I'll give you an example that doesn't even have to do with this, which is that the president apparently when asked uh, on the day that were, we're taping this episode about whether he thought the Federal Reserve uh, should be, you know, effectively independent. And whether you know, he he essentially said no. I think the pre- the Fed should help me out, and that that he didn't like the Fed raising rates, and he's disappointed with what Powell is doing at the you Fed. You know, I
1: was disappointed by that too, David.
2: You were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm sure that I'm sure that has them just shattered. But but the but the but the point the the point is that the 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 president seems to be operating on a completely different standard from any other president, which is either you're with. I mean, you know, Bush famously said, you're with me or against me. But he was talking about other countries or you're with us or you're against us. Trump is 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 essentially saying the way this government is, is you're either with him or you're against him. And he's going to p- penalize the ones who are against him. That,
1: that, yeah, that's- I mean, I, I don't. I don't think this is obviously news. He's made that very, very clear uh, from the very beginning uh, and, and has shown a willingness to oust people for showing the slightest signs of independence. He clearly thinks that uh, the attorney general is supposed to be his personal uh, errand boy. Um, he's absolutely irate about this poor guy nobody's ever heard of. Well, now they have and the Justice Department, uh, uh, who he keeps berating by tweets, um, you know, he he his view is that the entire apparatus of the u s. government exists solely to do his bidding. Uh, and he's quite vindictive when anybody doesn't do that. Um, so so, in that sense, it's it isn't new, but I think it's he's he's cutting more and more to the the core of the parts of government that we we view as and need to have be nonpartisan uh, and and apolitical. and and I think that you know, absolutely. The message the message here to any civil servant uh, is watch what you say, because even if you say something that would normally be considered completely part of your protected First Amendment rights, um, you could find yourself out on your butt. Um, the, you know one thing that I think is 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 tricky with this here, and it's, I was I was having a conversation with my father, and I'd be interested in what the rest of you think about this. And he was he was telling me about a conversation with a friend and neighbor of his who just couldn't understand what the issue was with the security clearances, uh, Brennan's security clearance being revoked, and so forth. Um, that this neighbor's position was, you work for the government. The government pays your paycheck. Um, the government is the president, um, and the president's in charge of the government, and so you're not supposed to say anything that the president doesn't want you to say, and that's all there is to it. And my father was talking about how how difficult he found it to try to explain that that's not quite right, <laughs> um, certainly for, for career people. But, but I, I wonder whether, in your experience... Mm. There are a lot of people out there who who are likely to take that view. I wonder whether this will seem as big a deal to to, uh, to the the alleged uh, denizens of the of the heartland uh, as it seems like to us.
2: Well, let's go to our heartland correspondent, Ed Luce, who is probably <laughs> standing in the middle of a field of wheat or in a rail yard, um speaking to people in the heartland
3: um. I think the conversation Rose's dad had with um, with his neighbour is is uh, my guess pretty typical of the reaction of most people. You do need to have this explained, why this is. Um, why this is such a bad precedent to be uh, for the president to be setting, why um, it is intended to you know um, stymie people lower down the the food chain who are still employed um, uh, by the federal government um, and, and and why we should care about it and if you're explaining, it takes a long time to explain, but as I say in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. Um, so we, we shouldn't assume. That you know, just because uh, you know all these very senior and and um, august and you know high integrity individuals, you know the, the likes of J- James Clapper and Admiral McRaven and so forth, are signing letters, that that is going to make the the the, the average um, the average voter up there sit up and listen. But after all, they have signed such letters before um, in the twenty sixteen campaign. Not all the same individuals, but all, august rosters of individuals. Uh, in the foreign policy establishment, the national security establishment, among, and amongst Republican establishment, have signed letters warning that then candidate Trump was a national security threat, and they had no impact at all, and in some ways actually proved helpful to him. So I think you know, again, there is there are two. I, I won't say very different conversations going on here. Um, Because I don't think the rest of America is having much of a conversation about this, Um, and as you know, we've discussed before, I believe it should be, but I think it's really unrealistic to expect that it will be.
2: Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point, Neda. You know, a bunch of the people who signed some of these letters are, are seen on a lot of letters. You know, they're senior political appointees who often play a role in campaigns or who are former public officials who often take a state, uh, make statements. But what struck me was that some of them were not people who typically you see signing letters or making public statements, including former colleagues of yours within the IC or people like uh, retired Admiral McRaven. And, I, and I'm wondering what significance do you give to the fact that so many of the people who were on these letters are not people who typically get involved in these kinds of political discussions.
0: At the CIA, we were told from day one when we walk in the building that political discussions can happen outside of work. They can happen with your colleagues, you know, in after hours. But while you're in this building, you are engaged in trying to be as objective as possible, providing analysis that is, you know, as true as, possible representation of what you're seeing for the policymaker. We couldn't even, as I'm, you know, working there, and this is true today, you can't even put a campaign sign in your lawn, you know, as as an empo- <clears throat> sorry, as an employee. So your your whole world is is apolitical at that point when you're working in that sphere. And so to have this kind of politicization of of speech Around and make it about the security clearance. I think that's what's resonating for everybody because it's they work so hard w- to be objective and not say, "You know, because I'm conservative, this is my viewpoint on this analytical product product, and therefore you should take it from my point of view. And that never crosses anybody's mind to even bring up that type of conversation when you're working inside the CIA so I think that's how come a lot of people signed it that you normally wouldn't see.
2: Well, you know, Rosa, one of the things that strikes uh, me and, and has struck many observers about this is that apparently what the president is trying to do, is, you know, we talk about loyalty, but he's trying to set up a political test and and that, you know, certain people should be precluded from doing certain jobs because they spoke out for a candidate in their private life, or they were married to somebody who spoke out for a candidate in their private yeah. life, or they were married to somebody who donated something, or they, they were married to somebody who worked for a certain kind of a company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, this creates a problem, um, quite one with, of course, freedom of expression, uh, but, but also, you know, were this to sort of become the norm, there there would all of a sudden be a political litmus test for law enforcement for intelligence for all these other things and people would be swept out of office as they uh as political winds in the united states shifted
1: yeah which would be very very sad uh for our country I, you know and and i think it's worth saying again something that i know i and and all of us have said before uh on this podcast among other places um You know, all the rhetoric about the swamp notwithstanding, um, the vast majority of the people who work in the federal government are really serious minded, decent, hardworking, honest public servants with an enormous amount of integrity and professionalism. And, you know, it was one of the things that was a real joy for me about working in the Pentagon um, uh, was that. I never had any idea if most of the people I worked with day to day were Democrats or Republicans. It just didn't come up. It didn't matter, uh, you know, that we would disagree over various things, but they weren't by and large partisan things. And obviously that's not true of the political appointees, but the majority of the people you work with were not political appointees. They were they were civil servants or members of the military, uh, and they were they were just doing their best for the country, I and mean, that sounds really, really corny, but that's I think what most people are trying to do. And it, it's it's been heartbreaking, among other things, and infuriating to see Trump vilifying uh, so many civil servants. But also, you know, if we shift to a world where everybody's a political appointee you know, to a, a sort of permanent spoil system. You know, that's something that our nation tried to outgrow, right? That 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 in earlier periods of American history, we did have essentially a political spoil system where you got government jobs because you helped a particular candidate. And if you hadn't helped them, you were, you were out on your butt uh, when the administration changed. It doesn't work well. It's a disaster for the country, you know, that you need people who will have institutional memory. You need people who will sort of call it like they see it. Uh, Regardless of who happens to be sitting in the White House and the the kind of stuff that Trump uh, has been doing, including these most recent stuff with security clearances, is uh, shifting us back to that old spoils system.
2: Um, Yeah, well, you know, Ed, I I almost want to pick up on on what you were starting to say on the last podcast, which is it's not just about a spoils system. It's not just about political toing and froing. It's deeper than that. It's about authoritarianism. It's about cult of personality. It's about a way of running a country that's completely antithetical um, to the way that we've run it in the past, particularly in areas of national security, where it's not that people had no political views, um, but where the vast majority of people said we have to place national security above or apart from politics.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of my problems with the clean break um, description of Trump is that we have seen politicization of intelligence before—the Bush administration, um, and you know the way uh, that the intelligence was um, cherry-picked and the pressure on um, professionals who were trying to do their um, trying to do their work professionally to. Um, to produce things that just weren't merited, um, you know, it is something that um, you know been around long before Trump. And I think you know the fact that, let's say, um, senior diplomatic posts are basically auctioned off. You know, embassy uh, uh, ambassadorial appointments have basically, for you know, donkey's years, been auctioned off um, to the the highest donors or bundlers for pres- winning presidential campaigns, means that what Trump is doing is he's making an existing um, systems problems much worse. But he's not a complete clean break um, from them. Um, The example of the Federal Reserve, which you mentioned earlier, which is is going to become a more and more live one, um, that has been treated um, as independent. Presidents have, at least since the late 70s, treated the Fed um, with respect um, and not put pressure on the chairman of the Fed and the board of the Fed to make political interest rate decisions. Um, uh, But there is a whole history of Nixon, LBJ, and many presidents before them, basically getting Fed chairs to do exactly what they want. Um, I I mentioned that, I pick up on that, not just because you raised it earlier, but because I think that's going to become a more and more live example um, of what we're talking about. You know, right now the economy is going gangbusters—not not not for most Americans, but it, you know, in terms of aggregate growth, it's going gangbusters. But by twenty nineteen, the stimulus effect of these very unwise tax cuts are going to be fading out. The fact that um, you know uh, uh, gas price in- increases um, uh, are basically eaten up most of the middle class element of that tax cut, which was very very small anyway, um, is going to be added to by the interest rate increases that we're going to see from the Fed. There's probably going to be at least two more this year um, by Jay Powell, Um, probably four next year if you look at the sort of um, plot curves that that, that economists uh, um, have for the Fed. Um, and as Trump approaches his reelection in 2020, you're going to get um, a bigger and bigger divergence between what he wants the Fed to do and what the Fed is doing. And he's given this, you know, a couple of interviews now where he said, no, look, I'd like Powell to be my house pet. I'd like him to basically take political instructions. This is a warning shot that the independence of the Fed um, is going to, uh, uh, I think, be shredded by Trump. Uh, in the second half of his term. So we're not just talking about national security norms being eroded and you know, um, um, uh, other regulatory agencies being made more um, prisoners of the industries they're supposed to regulate than they were before Trump got to power. But we're talking about sort of whole new areas like um, the Fed, um, the Fed independence um, uh, being in question too.
2: Well, you know, let's come, come back to this. Um, uh, Ed Ed is suggesting that this kind of politicization has always, has always been there in some form. Do you have a response to that?
0: Well, (laughs) I was on the team and inside the CIA that was in charge of putting together whether or not Iraq had anything to do with nine 11 and Al Qaeda. So we had, of course, a whole relationship with the administration um, that was not typical. Um, we, we certainly had our fair share of questions. We had, um, I guess, what some might construe as pressure. But I had a branch chief that knew what she was doing. She had been Cheney's briefer. Um, she knew how to push back. She knew how to anticipate questions. We prepped and prepped and prepped. Um, so we didn't, on my side of the house, we didn't really have the, the politicization necessarily. There was a little bit of pressure there, but the, it wasn't, it wasn't, you need to change the bottom line to suit my needs. Um, there was constructive criticism. There was, you know, some critical thinking going through, but how did you arrive at this point? You know, at, at least asking questions and then listening. So from my perspective, it's very different than what we're seeing now, which is you see it my way or nothing at all. And so I, you know, I agree. We've seen politicization, but not at this level.
2: And some of the politicization associated with that decision is kind of after the fact, right? I mean, a number of people after uh, it was discovered that the uh, WMDs did not exist as we expected in Iraq said, well, therefore, the reason this decision was reached must have been entirely because of political pressure and not because there was some evidence suggesting that the WMDs were there. And, and that exacerbates the or, or, or sort of makes exaggerates the concerns about political pressure there. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, but I perceive that's the case. Is that not right?
0: I mean, Granted, I was not on the team that was analyzing the WMD, and I didn't see all the intricacies of what was happening with their analysis. But, yes, I think that is that is a reasonable summary of what had happened. Um, and I also think, you know, that's a whole other conversation. There were layers of, within the agency as well um, that were part of that whole conversation. So it wasn't just a top-down administration right to analysts pressuring them to write something they wanted.
2: It was very different. Um, Rosa, similarly, you, you know you have a lot of experience inside the Department of Defense, uh, and clearly, the issues associated with DOD have been highly politicized, uh, and there have been tensions between generals and admirals who are seen to play a political game versus those who are not seen to be you know being, taking more of the position. Say of the, of the building and the Pentagon, um, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on on, on Ed's comment.
1: Yeah, it, there's always been some politicization, as as Neda said. You know, it's there's never been some halcyon period where where there was none whatsoever. But I think that the the politicization has been more mild and limited to a handful of officials at the top. Um, I worry that it's becoming more pervasive and getting pushed down deeper and deeper uh, into all the uh, executive branch departments and agencies. Um, so, so you know, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing that there be some skirmishing, right? Um, that's somewhat normal. Um, it's just a question of, is the penalty for not doing what the White House wants you to do that you feel like you get frozen out of a few meetings? um, Or is the penalty that you risk getting fired and losing your security clearance if you leave and so on and so forth? You know, that it's just amped up uh, uh, multiple, multiple levels now, I think.
2: Hmm. Just wondering to what extent this is partially a process thing. You know, normally, you have processes that, get collective views, and they they balance each other out a little bit more and so forth. And in this current situation, you've got sort of the president and a couple of people making decisions, no effective processes, um, and that allows these things to be come more out into the light, and we get more of a tension between the views of the president and the views of, of everybody else. Now, let me go to you on that, Nate, and then I'll go to Ed. You think that's the case, that part of it's process, not just personalities?
0: Yes, I do think that's the case. I think part of this is process, but part of it's his ignorance about the process. He doesn't seem to understand the utility of um, former directors and advisors having a security clearance. And there's a lots of conversation I see from Trump supporters and within that sphere of why should they have these to begin with? Well, they're purposeful, as, as Rosa said, it's a continuity of knowledge to have in, inside these government institutions. You'd be able to call up a former director and say, we're in this crisis. You know, what is your experience? Can you help us? And having that type of institutional knowledge is amazing. I mean, any gu- any company out there would love to be able to do that on any given day, I'm sure. Um, so I think some of it's process, but and some of it, I guess I would say, and this might sound a little harsh, is willful ignorance on his part. He doesn't care to understand or know, I guess what the process is for.
2: It just wants it his way,
0: yeah, I think he does. And that's I think that that right is right there essentially is the biggest problem
1: um across well, and the- And one of the things that that I think, uh, you know, I certainly was one of the people who criticized uh, President Obama at times for being a little too much of a bubble. Uh, And I had the same criticism many times of, of George W. Bush, but but. Those bubbles look incredibly permeable relative to Trump's bubble, right? that that for all of their failings, um, both both George W. Bush and Barack Obama at various points in their presidency, uh, made it really clear to their inner circle that they they were upset when they felt like they were being fed information or not being given conflicting arguments and views, uh, and made us think about it. That doesn't mean that they always got all the views that they should have, but but I think that they they tried um, at least some of the time, if not all of the time, they tried fairly hard to make sure that they were not just hearing what people thought they wanted to hear. And it, it, it's structurally really difficult because when you're the president, everybody does want to tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, and you have to work very hard to resist that. Um, they didn't fully succeed, but I think they did both try. Whereas uh, Trump, I think his, you know, in terms of internal White House process as well, has been been the complete opposite. You know, my understanding uh, uh, rather shockingly, is that there have been uh, uh, virtually no full National Security Council meetings, uh, that there have been very few principals committee meetings on, and that, that means the sort of uh, uh, chief of the agency level, secretary, cabinet secretary level meetings um, on any of the issues that you might think of as the most critical foreign policy issues, North Korea, et cetera, uh, Iran, um, Turkey. Um, you know that that I think he is like a, a well, in so many ways, he's sort of like a, a parody of of himself. Um, you know, he's he's not interested in hearing about it. He's not interested in reading the intelligence briefs uh, that are given to him, um uh, talking to a few indiscreet briefers. My sense is that they're they're down to a couple bullets and a few pictures um because he does not read what what um, like and, what
2: what kind of pictures?
1: <laughs> Cartoons. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, but but no, I mean I mean it, it's been very clear that he he is not interested in reading uh, memos, much less entire binders full of information. That he wants everything presented to him, if possible, orally, and that he's not really very interested in listening to any briefings uh, at all. He's not interested. He thinks he knows it. He watches Fox News. He doesn't. He's, he he doesn't want to hear anything that's different. And I think that makes him, you know, strikingly different from. Any recent president of any party, uh, all of whom I think felt at least some sense of obligation to try to push themselves to at least think about different perspectives to make sure they got things right. I, I don't see Trump doing that at all.
2: Neda, do can you can I play
3: d- devil's advocate? Oh, sorry, can, 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 carry on.
2: There. No, no, I'd like to come to you to play devil's advocate in a second. But Nada, do you know any indiscreet briefers? i, I I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> half joking. But but if you do, tell us about them. But, but what, I, what I'm really sort of getting at and following up to Rose's point is how much of what the intelligence community is doing involves dumbing down its reports?
0: I think basically, as an analyst, it would be so incredibly frustrating right now because your bread and butter is writing these products for policymakers. And being able to draft the presidential daily briefs and have the president, you know, be informed by your analysis is a big deal. And I can't even imagine at this like what a PDV would look like at this point. Cause I, I mean, I wrote my fair share of these. And to be dumb it down to just a couple bullet points and a topic sentence with a picture, you you cannot get your point across. There's absolutely zero nuance that you could try to actually, you know, feed to the president at that point. So I can't even imagine what he would even know by by reading
2: something like that. Yeah, and you may want to ignore my question and just play devil's advocate, but I, this is all drifting in an interesting direction for me because we started out this conversation with a discussion about the the sort of authoritarian president who doesn't stand for anybody who doesn't go his way, who wants to punish people for having differing political views. And so the issue was um a loyalty or the the desire to quash sort of free speech, but you know, Nada was the first to bring it up, and Rosa sort of teased this out a bit. A bigger issue than this may just be ignorance, whether it's willful or not. A lack of desire. It's not just that he doesn't trust certain people; he doesn't trust information. He's not interested in information. He's willing to tune out almost everybody who's purveying information uh and that therefore is a bigger problem even than the loyalty problem and i was just wondering what your thoughts are
3: yeah i think that's absolutely right and one theory i've seen on twitter as to why he keeps misspelling the word council c-o-u-n-c-e-l is because he only ever hears it he doesn't actually read it and that would go for all his other um um serial spelling mistakes um you know i think uh, the the complete lack of curiosity um, and lack of respect for information and analysis is very true. It's a, not just a sort of secondary problem. This is a, a, a mortal problem for the Commander in Chief to be suffering from. Um, that where I wanted to play devil's advocate um, isn't on the professionalism and the quality of the work provided by the CIA, as Nader very sort of eloquently put it. It's on what uh, their political um, their political bosses do with that information and want from that information. And I do believe, very real time, that we shouldn't underestimate or forget the degree to which there was a completely self-constructed bubble after 9-11. Rumsfeld, Cheney, and others um, very much decided that they will look for facts um, that will support the case um, that Saddam Hussein was involved with al-Qaeda and that we will um, find grounds for um the launch of a war on Saddam Hussein's route to depose Saddam Hussein. Hussein. And th- that was that was willful, far more professionally um, sort of organized. Cheney you know, knew his way around um the bureaucracy more than more than perhaps anybody. Um, and far more um clear-sighted in in the sense that you knew what the president wanted and you worked for to get that if you were one of his political appointees. But there have been bubbles before and there had been very deliberate bubbles before. What makes Trump different is that um, nobody who works for him can be, can be sure what he actually wants. Um, that he could change his policy tomorrow. That he could go from saber-rattling on North Korea to saying Kim Jong-un's a very fine person. Um, that he can, um, he can turn on a dime. That he's um, um, an incredibly um, capricious um, narcissistic uh, individual. And of course, one facet of that is ignorance. Another is pride in ignorance, um, the, the belief that he's just so smart, he doesn't need to know anything. And even further still, that actually knowledge is a problem. Because when you're smart, you, you can sort of grasp the essentials. And so you know, I would agree with everything that um, you've all said about Trump, and, and, and what a mortal threat this poses to the Republic and beyond. Um, but I do think there was a chronic problems with the system before Trump came to power. And, and if we underplay that, that there is some element of continuity here, um, we're actually playing into Trump's hands in a way. As I said, I'm playing devil's advocate.
1: I, I I'll accept that as a friendly, friendly amendment, though. I, I, I don't at all mean to uh, suggest that the, the Bush bubble, especially right after 9-11, was not... Uh, uh, extremely pernicious and and devastating not only to the U.S., but to quite a lot of other people around the globe. Uh, I guess the only thing I would say is that in Bush's second term, even he began to try to peel himself away from Cheney and Rumsfeld. Uh, He, you know, he finally, I think it hit him that he was stuck in a bubble and things weren't going so well. Uh, It's not clear that that's ever likely to occur to Donald Trump.
0: I I totally agree with Rosa. And I think that, you know, Doug Fife had the, he was building the bubble at at the Pentagon. Um, We used to refer to it as Fife based analysis. But the difference (laughs) in his bubble versus what's happening now is there was a respect for process. We were given, the CIA's product was given elevation over Fife, even within the White House, um, where this, Fife-based analysis was built to serve. So the fact that process is being ignored, in addition to the fact that the substance isn't even being read, there's the breakdown is so catastrophic, I think, and broad that it it makes it almost impossible to then ensure that you're going to have any kind of typical normal decision making being done. I mean, I'm just I would be horrified if something like 9-11 happened now under his watch can imagine who he would think would be responsible for
2: it. Well, but that, of course, is the issue that many people have brought up before, which is that we are into this presidency uh, approaching two years in, and almost all of the crises that we've had to deal with were crises of the president's creation. We haven't had to deal with an external one, except, you know, and there have been some natural disasters which haven't gone very well, Um, and that if there were a 9-11-like attack or there were some other kind of a more complex security attack, uh, without a process, without a president with interests in a fair process, without a president with experience, without a president who appreciates um, uh, knowledge uh, and who thinks he's right about everything, we would be in some pretty deep water. Uh, And, you know, I guess that, you know, I guess that gets us to, um, you know, our conclusion here, which is that we can only go and look for lessons from this um that we hope may be applied um you know in 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 the in the future. I guess I guess I'll go with one last quick round of questions here and let me start with you, Nada. Um Gina Haskell, you know, has is a uh uh experienced CIA person who clearly understands everything you understand uh and has to work within this. And Dan Coates the DNI seems to be trying to figure out ways to work within it. Are people like that at the heads of these organizations, you know capable of limiting the damage and ensuring that the capacity is there? should we need it in your eyes?
0: I would think so. Um, you know, with the lack of process and normalcy, they're now being pushed down to have to operate sort of like mid-level management, where it's really based on relationships. Is my guess, and so you're really trying to hold things together by collectively building your own deep state, (laughs) Um, and and making sure that all the institutions maintain their, you know, their expertise and and their abilities to react if something like a nine eleven were to happen again.
2: You you noticed that Rosa she laughed at deep state.
1: (laughs) Well, it's no laughing matter.
2: Yeah, yeah, Neda. We think the deep state are the heroes in this story.
0: <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> we
2: we we th- we think at the end of the day, it's going to be the people who just sort of show up, do their job, do it as they always I, have.
1: You know, here is the only saving grace in all this. Um, when I was uh, a good deal younger than I am now, my first job in the federal government was at the State Department, and I worked on on. Issues that to the rest of the building were fantastically obscure and unimportant, which is to say I worked on things like the creation of a special court for Sierra Sierra Leone to adjudicate uh, uh, about alleged atrocities during the Sierra Leonean Civil War and on judicial reconstruction in Kosovo. And nobody... In any senior position in the building, uh, cared at all about these things, and that actually, in some ways, was quite liberating. Because if you worked on an issue that was uh, on the front pages of the newspapers, you couldn't get anything done um, because it would be mired in in politics, and or and not just I don't just mean or even mainly mean partisan politics. I I mainly mean the you know rice bowls and who got to take the credit for what initiative and so on. Um, but if you worked on things that were incredibly obscure, nobody cared what you did. And so you could actually accomplish quite a lot and do some good. Uh, and I felt like we were able to do some good. and And I think that that remains true for, you know ninety five percent of people working in the executive branch uh, are operating, you know below the level that this sort of, crazy stuff has yet penetrated to, and they're just doing their jobs on things that will never be on Trump's radar screen. They, I'm sure they, they, they fervently hope, at least. Um, and you know the, they are still able to carry on doing decent, good, useful things. Um, so that's the good news. I, I think it's, it's vulnerable. It's fragile. It, it won't necessarily stay that way if, if what we've been seeing continues. Uh, but not everything has yet been destroyed.
2: Well, gee, you know, Corey's not here and you've just claimed the (laughs) tiara of optimism, which is the government is too big for Trump to destroy. You know, that's uh, that's that's an upbeat note for all of us to end on here. Um, I wish we had more time Uh, and I hope that, Neda, you will come back and join us again at some point in the future. Uh, And, you know, we can even come and visit our studios here in the third sub basement. And Rosa, we hope you will be back to them soon. And Ed, I know you're coming back to Washington tomorrow. There'll be a small military parade, $92 million worth just for you <laughs> as you ride back um, here in, in, in Washington. And we will be back with everybody again next week. But I do want to say before we go that, you know, on the week of September 10th, we're going to be launching deep state radio Network.com, Our, uh, our website where you'll be able to get these podcasts, but you'll also be able to get a lot more. You'll get a lot more content. You'll be able to get uh,
1: stuff. You're going to be able to get stuff, right, David?
2: There will also be stuff. There will be content and there will be stuff on the front page. There'll be content like, you know, more uh, podcasts and more uh, audio and video products and even some written products and even a daily written product. Uh, Some content just going to be
1: like the president's daily brief. So it's going to be really, really short. It'll be better
2: than the president's daily brief and, but it will be all cartoons. And then, you know, in the back, there will be a store Rosa where you can get, you know, cups and mugs and, and tiaras of optimism and, you know, thorny crowns of entropy and all the things that deep state radio nerds want. And there will be special deals For those who support us a little bit by becoming members of Deep State Radio Network, to get all the info on this and to get some early discounts, you just go to deepstateradionetwork.com, click on register and uh, give us your name and your email and we'll send you that information. don't
1: feel at all anxious about giving us all of your personal information because we are the Deep State and we have your interests at heart.
2: Yeah, first of all, we already have all of your personal information. And secondly, we're only asking for your email address um so you know don't 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 worry about it no rose is asking you for your social security (laughs) number um and i would like to
3: know people's blood group that would be quite helpful yeah
2: yeah and and nada knows all these things already which is why she's
1: as do the chinese so don't hesitate at all
2: yeah exactly exactly in any event Thank you very much, Nada. Thank you very much, Rosa. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you very much, nerds everywhere. Thank you, Ian, for producing this. And we'll join you all again next week on Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright.